From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of the groundsman conversations and boy oh boy do we have a conversation for you today but before we get to that i have to introduce two grumpy old men uh i've got no shortage of those in my life to choose from but these two particular grumpy old men um i enjoy spending time with giles morgan and roger mitchell giles i know you can't spell your own name properly in your uh, riverside <laughs> fm thing but uh, how are you my friend you okay morgan are you going to japan or something yeah, I've, I, yeah, I'm blaming it on jet lag. I've just had, as as you guys know, I've just um, come off a, a long trip to Australia, including the um, the Perth to London 17 oh, yes. hour flight, which is um, a DVT ripper, I can tell you. So I'm probably going to be talking nonsense for the next few 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 minutes, but no change there. <laughs> why, I say, why change the trend of a lifetime? And, <laughs> and also joining us, the mayor from the lake himself, Roger Mitchell. Roger, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, Giles' last-minute entry into the Riverside <laughs> platform. One of the all-time serendipitous. <laughs> I won't go any further, and it shouldn't ever be broadcast. But you would not believe it. <laughs> but it's lovely yeah, to have you back, Captain. The outtake of a lifetime. Take him alive. I think I'm going to have to bribe you guys for the next 40 years. <laughs> what a, what, without question, the greatest welcome any guest has ever had to any podcast in history. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, no, listen, gentlemen, talk, talking of guests, uh, we have a very, very special one joining us today. Um, uh, Giles, I, I know you're going to introduce our guest properly in a second, but why don't you just let people know who we're going to have the privilege to talk to for the next hour or so? Yeah, it's um, we're only going back uh, twenty years, but maybe the greatest sprinter, certainly one of the greatest sprinters of all time, Michael Johnson, joins us on the show. Um, someone I think all of us in the nineties would have watched religiously, particularly that ninety six and two thousand Olympics, where he was absolutely dominated the back pages, the very famous iconic shots of the of the gold running spikes, and would he wouldn't, and in fact. I can't wait to, to to catch up with him and to hear what he has to say because I was privileged enough as a very young buck um, working for Adidas in 1996. Very last minute, I was summoned out to Atlanta, which was a ghastly games, to go and uh, sort of, you know, move shoes around or whatever I was doing. It was pretty menial stuff, but I managed to blag a ticket to watch that 400 meters that he ran. And when have people have been bored enough in the pub to ask me of the greatest sporting moments that I've ever seen, there are two. There's the Nadal-Federer final in 2008. And it was him running that 400 metres, partly because I've been working with Adidas and he was a Nike runner, so he was the inverted commas enemy. But more, and also Roger Black was running and he was the sort of the great British hope. Remember? And he yeah. got absolutely slayed by Battered. one of the greatest 400 <laughs> metres. But what I will never forget, Atlanta then was ghastly. Was, but when the gun went, the whole stadium for that 44-odd seconds was just flashlights all the way around and it didn't stop there has never been a pyrotechnic show as good as just people wanting to capture that moment and it was I, I, it will it will live with me till the day i die beautiful phenomenal so jilo before we before we uh, before we bring michael on i have to ask you uh you went to the melbourne cup the race that stops the nation uh how was it your first time to do that right it was my first time, and, and I have to say, I'm not particularly a horse racing, um, not maybe not fan. I'd love to go to big events. We've yet to beat one, big... anyway. <laughs> but the Melbourne Cup is something else. I have to say, Australians do it, and I think you've been before, Grant. I had not seen it. I've been told about the numbers of people there, the fanfare, the tradition, but with that Aussie twist, which it's not pompous, it's just a celebration of humanity, a love, I mean, a pure love of horse racing and the bet. Um, I, I 
had the privilege of, of going both to the Victoria Derby Day, which is the more sort of pure thoroughbred day. Fantastic. Wore a suit, got very into it, etc. But on, I then I got a ticket for the Melbourne Cup and was in the committee room and it was all very exciting. And I thought, how can I just dig one in the ribs to, to the Aussies? Because you got to do that when you're over there. So it's, it was morning dress was the, uh, was the attire. So I put on my MCC tie um, to go into the committee room. And I have to tell you the amount of shit I got from Aussies going, you're coming in there with your egg and bacon, mate. Absolute gold. Just loved it. So uh, <laughs> I think I, I think I cut a, I cut a, a figure for, for a moment, but full, full credit. I said on a, on a social media post that we talk about bucket lists and we have a show about bucket lists. This wouldn't have been on my bucket list, but having been it, it sort of retrospectively yeah, is. I have never like. enjoyed yeah. a, a day out and wow. an entire nation literally, literally getting behind this social event that is, as it says, it stops the nation. Yeah, it is. It is a fantastic event. And, and you're right. You, unless you go, you, you're never going to really understand it. You just can't do it justice. Well, listen, um, why don't you give our esteemed guest a proper introduction? Because he certainly deserves one given, uh, given his record in, uh, in track and field. Our guest this week could rightly be described as a true sporting legend. And I think it's fair to say he would probably make the Pantheon VIP guest list without breaking a stride. Michael Johnson is undoubtedly one of the world's greatest sprinters of all time. He won four Olympic golds, eight world championship golds. He was the world record holder in two and 400 metres and the only man ever to have had um, won both events at the same Olympics. And he's also the only man to have defended his 400-meter um, Olympic title in Sydney in 2000. And most astonishingly, he was unbeaten in the 400 meters for seven years. Since retiring in 2001, he has worked extensively in the media. He founded the Michael Johnson um, Performance Facility in Texas, and his book, Slaying the Dragon, is a wonderful motivational handbook about how one can turn defeat and setback into success. In 2018, he had his own setback where he suffered a stroke, which he has since recovered from, having cited that it was his Olympic mindset that helped him get back on his feet. Truly one of the great sportsmen of all time, and for us, all of us at Are You Not Entertained, an enormous privilege and pleasure to have him on the show. Michael, welcome to Are You Not Entertained. Uh, thanks, Charles. Glad to be with you guys. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Well, and it's a joy for me, particularly for our listeners who are who get BBC in their in their in their in their feed, whether they live in the UK or, or elsewhere. You've been very much a, a guide to athletics on BBC television, citing real wisdom and real knowledge. So it's it's lovely now that a sport that for all of us we all probably grew up with, um, athletics was very much the sort of barometer for growing up for people who were born in the sixties and the seventies, but is perhaps a sport that is facing its own challenge, existential challenges as a sport. And you've been vocal about that. And part of this podcast is to really scratch the itch of sport and, 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 and maybe be honest about where sport is going and what sports need to do in a very changing world. So tell us, before we sort of pile into, into that and other things, what have you been up to recently? What, what's your world right now? What is the Michael Johnson world right over the last six months? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been good. It's uh, I'm I'm at a point um, in my life, and I would say in my professional career, I guess as well, where I'm just busy enough, but not too busy, um, and um, and working on projects that that I really truly enjoy, and and doing things that I feel like I'm good at, and not having to do things that I'm not very good at. Um, the first, I would say. Uh, uh, 15 years or so of my post-athletic career life, I was uh, busy, busier than I needed to be. Um, I chose that. Um, and when I started that on that path, I was in my 30s, right after my, my athletic career. And then um, I found myself into my early 50s and not enjoying the things that I was doing in my early 30s. Um, being an entrepreneur, which I, I, I wanted to do, that was my dream. After my athletic career, I started Michael Johnson Performance, a couple of other ventures as well, running those, managing people, you know, waking up every morning with a new challenge uh, from a business standpoint was was enjoyable. But now 
not so much. So now I'm working on uh, advising companies, doing a lot of speaking as well um, on uh, performance mindset and helping tech startups and Fortune 500 you know, companies, global uh, organizations, figure out how to do the hard stuff, which everybody needs to do and wants to do when you're in business. Michael, do you think that when you retired, you know, you had this extraordinary career, ex- incredible success, and we've had quite a lot of athletes on the on the show over the years. And one of the things that I always imagine, not having been an athlete of any sort, but imagine it the very top tier, is the fear of retirement, the fear of silence, the, re- the fear of not being busy means that you got yourself very busy so you wouldn't have that silence. Do, do you think that played a part that having had this sort of great success that the abyss of not being on the track maybe was the reason that you got so stuck into things? It, it's it's possible. I think that, that that's, there's certainly something to that for most professional athletes. Uh, retirement is, is difficult for most professional athletes, but for different reasons. I think for me it was a bit different. It's just my personality. Um, that, you know, I, being productive is part of my personality. It feeds something in me. Um, I've always been intrigued with business, um, and business strategy. It's always been interesting to me. And now 20 plus years into my, my career as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, um, I still enjoy a lot of the, the aspects of that. And, um, and then after, you know, when, for me also, you know, having spent, you know, 14, 15 years of my life waking up every day with a singular purpose and motivation to run faster than I was before, to run faster than everyone else. So it was all about just being faster. And that dominated my, my, my mindset, you know, and sort of routine every day. Um, so after that, you know, yeah, I wanted to wake up every morning with a different challenge. So, you know, I didn't, you know, and then that was quite a different and a departure from what I had been used to for those first 15 years. So that, being a television pundit, being a corporate motivational speaker and mindset, performance mindset advisor, being a entrepreneur as well. So for the last uh, 20 plus years since my retirement, I've done all of those things and that creates a different challenge every day. And that's quite a bit different than when I was an athlete. While I love being an athlete, I love waking up every morning with that, that singular purpose. I wanted to do something different with the next phase of my life. Michael, have you, have you learned how to relax? And, and if, if so, how difficult was that? Because you, you get to an age, and I think we're all in our 50s here, where you need to relax. And for someone like you, that must I would imagine that'd be a really difficult thing to actually do. Yeah, it, it's difficult, it, but it may not be for the reasons that you think. Again, you know, I think that people have, and I've heard this for years, I think people have this certain sort of idea of athletes. And, and by and large, it, it probably is true. I'm a bit different. Um, I would be this way whether I was an athlete or not. So, so on the point of relaxing, as an example, um, most people, you know, will sort of think that well, it's hard for athletes to relax because you're so, you know, you know, sort of high strung and you know, you're so competitive. And and for me, it's more uh, just, you know, I I thrive on, and it may be a bit the same, but I thrive on achieving my goals. I thrive on being productive and building things. Um, and so when, you, you know, from a relaxation standpoint, yes, I have learned to relax, but I didn't, I learned to relax after my stroke in 2018. Um, but if you had asked me, if you looked at my life before the stroke in 2018 and, and after my retirement, I would have said, and you would say as well, if you looked at my life that, Michael lives a very relaxed life. You know, I, I, I take probably more vacations than the average person, um, probably four or five a year. Um, and a lot of times those are, I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to, you know, travel to great places around the world for work as opposed to, you know, yeah. Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a great city. Not really, but no, I, I wouldn't want to have to go there. <laughs> you know? But, you know, so, so I get to go to some great places. I, I, I love my red wine and my scotch. And um, I, my, my wife and I are both, uh, my wife's a chef. And we eat out a lot and she cooks great. We, we eat and I got great friends. I spend a lot of time with my friends. I have a great life. But at the same time, you know, work is stressful, but I would, you would, you wouldn't have said it. I wouldn't have said, and I never said it was stressful before because I enjoy it and I'm good at it. 
And it wasn't until I had the stroke that I had to realize that, you know, just because I'm good at dealing with stress and pressure doesn't mean that it's good for me. Just because I enjoy it doesn't mean that it's not stressful. So, so yes, I've learned to relax. I've learned to, and, and, and it wasn't really hard for me, you know, because I'm my early from in my fifties now. And, and that now I realize that, uh, yeah, when I enjoyed it early on, but I don't really enjoy all aspects of it anymore. So now I'm able to pick out the ones I do enjoy. Michael, can I ask you to come back a little bit? You mentioned Minneapolis there, the, the great city of Prince. Um, can I ask you a little bit uh, about the people that influenced you as you developed that character that you've just explained? You know, I, I first heard of you when you broke Pietro Minea's record, you know, because uh, I, I live in Italy and um, a lot of my family is Italian. So that was a very important record you broke. And since then, I've always looked up to what you've done. Everybody has. But when you were growing up, who were the people that you kind of looked at? I've seen you talk about Wanterina before, but who are the other ones that really put you on that road? Yeah, I think, you know, from an athletic standpoint, um, Jesse Owens, um, um, Muhammad Ali, who I got to know and got to to, to know quite well um, early on in my career, um, and just an amazing, amazing individual. And um, I took a lot of notes and cues from him and, and was able to uh, spend a fair amount of time around him to learn from him as well. And um but in, in, in track and field, Jesse Owens, you know, true hero, just an amazing, amazing athlete, an amazing person. Um, Tommy Smith, who uh, most people know from Mexico City, 1968, um, Black Power Salute. But Tommy Smith was the first person um, to actually, you know, just show true, absolute world-class talent at 200 meters and 400 meters when, um, you know, the traditional double was always 100, 200. But, but Tommy was, was my inspiration behind thinking that, no, I could actually be a 200, 400 meter sprinter. Um, and while, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of credited for, you know, the, you know, being the first person to really do that at that level, Tommy could have done it. He was an amazing 200, 400 meter sprinter. And Valerie Briscoe Hooks, who nobody really talks about nearly enough, actually did do it in the 84 Olympics. Michael, I remember um, hearing you speak a few years ago around um, when rugby went into the Olympics in Dubai, that you came out and spoke to a few people about where Rugby Sevens was going. And I, something I remember you saying there very clearly that it was when um, Bolt was still, we were still, the world was still reeling from the extraordinary effect that Usain Bolt had had on athletics and the star power and the firepower that he brought to the sport. And I remember you saying then that obviously he was a wonderful 100 meter, 200 meter runner and that you were very pleased that he hadn't done 400 meters because he'd probably been, uh, been quite good at that as well. Is that, is that, is that true? Was that of the time? Do you think that someone like him was, was able to do anything at all? How much have you admired what, because it, for me, he always felt like he took the, um, the baton that you had carried of the sort of the fastest sprinter and he was the next guy, the great next superstar of his generation. Yeah, um, I actually tried to encourage Usain to run the 400 because I never, before he became a great 100, 200 meter sprinter, he was actually as a, as a, as a, a youth athlete, he was a really good 400 meter athlete because obviously with his height, coaches immediately put him in 400 meters and thought, you're never going to be a great 100 meter, 200 meter sprinter. 400 the jury bet because he was so tall. He's actually pretty good at it. And then he, he became a 100, 200 sprinter and, and of course broke the world records and won all of the medals. And, and I, I would always say, you know, you could be the first person to be, you know, Olympic champion at 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, which, you know, if I, you know, given my history of going after that sort of, you know, legendary status and doing those things that have never been done before in this sport, that's where my mind went to. But, um, but, but you saying he's a smart guy. He knows what that 400 meter training is like, and he didn't want any part of that. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so he never read the 400 meters. But yeah, he 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 was the next great sprinter after me, of course. And uh, there's a bit of a gap there. And I, I retired in 2001, and he came on and really hit the scene. I mean, he was around in 2004, um, but really sort of made it start to make his mark on the sport in 2008. 
And it seems to me that the, the, the sport of athletics, certainly for all of us, we're all in our, our 50s, as we've, we've, all, we've all agreed, we're old. But there seems to be generationals for, for British people that the co-Ovet era was huge, the middle distance running, and that athletics has always had certain poster children who've held the, the baton, again, use that term, to keep the sport in the, in, in, the, in the limelight for a long, long time. And yet it feels now that maybe there aren't quite as many, I'm sure the heroes are there, but the world aren't seeing them in the heroes that they were when you were there or when Carl Lewis was running or before that at the Co-Ovet or the Daily Thompson again, obviously one of the great Brits that, that we're all very familiar with. Do you think that's something that, are the heroes still there? Is that something that the sport needs to work on? I'm intrigued because for me, when I think about athletics, I think about certain individuals who did some astonishing things, but I don't necessarily feel that personally quite as much, or is that me just being out of touch with the sport? No, I think, look, here's the the issue with the sport. Um, you know, just as you just talked about, you know, the sport is sort of, the structure of the sport is built around legends and needing legends and having and, and what most people know about the sport you know you know if it's you know someone you know you, you know Roger talked about you know um pietro Menea. so the italians will that'll be their thing and now it'll be marcel jacobs and if you're in we talked about uh juan Torrena, you know if you're in cuba it's, it's oh i remember juan Torrena. you can go to any country and everybody's got that sort of memory of the sport these iconic memories and athletes in the sport who did amazing things that's in, in other sports, football, as an example, that's secondary. What most people are talking about is, you know, whoever it was that Chelsea played this weekend and it was a great match, you know, and, you know, that, you know, and it's the current day, you know, just amazing competition between great teams or between great athletes. Track or athletics as a sport doesn't build that sort of infrastructure of just week in, week out amazing competition between athletes and, 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 and showing the public that this is the best of the best athletes. They're competing against one another, you know, on a weekly or monthly or whatever, you know, sort of basis it is, and that winning these races means something. Our sport has built itself around, traditionally around the Olympics, because of course it is an Olympic sport. But outside of the Olympics, we try to have a professional existence that sits outside of the Olympics, but that particular existence is built on records and times. And it's all about records and times. And it's all about legend and having this one person that we can talk about. So Usain Bolt, as an example, as great as he was, it was not that great for the sport because it set us up again for, okay, we had Michael Johnson, for that we had Carl Lewis, now we have Usain Bolt. And when we don't have one of those, then the sport suffers. But it's amazing competition if we were to move away from this idea of, oh, are we going to see a world record today? Or, and it's gotten so ridiculous now. They're so desperate for records in the sport that now they're promoting national records or area records. Or I'll get, you know, people calling me saying, oh, I heard one of your records is broken. What record? Oh, it's the Stockholm Stadium record. Well, I didn't even know I had that record. It doesn't even mean anything. Another side, nobody, nobody cares about that. You know, who won the race? That's what it should be about. Michael, let's let's follow on a little bit with that because um, you're right, especially we even previous podcasts talked about, you know, the new technology in shoes and everything like that that makes records even not comparable anymore. It's no longer apples and apples in a lot of ways. You know, so you're right. I believe this focus on records is wrong. And you and others have talked quite a lot recently about getting back to, you know, head to head. You know, Giles is right. We all grew up in, in an era where, you know, there was a Friday night and a Saturday night event and it was set up with the, the rivals and it was compe compelling television. I'm talking about the UK, really compelling television. Athletics was the centre of prime time entertainment uh, as a weekend started. You know, so when you look at athletics now, which let's be really honest, is a basket case business-wise. It's an absolute basket case. Uh, the amount that the athletes earn, the amount that World Athletics earns, there's no revenue money. UK athletics is probably bust if it's not already. You know, 
What is your view about how you get around that? Is it challenger leagues? Is it fresh capital? Is it short form races? Is it just, you know, 100 meter, you know, sprint, uh, uh, really, really tight, short races against one against one? You know, how do we get back to where we were to bring this sport back to what it was for all of us when we were young men? Yeah, it's, it's first of all, it's, you know, the, 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 the federations, you know, World Athletics, UK Athletics, USA Track and Field, these organizations are great at governance and rules and things like that. That's what they're good at. When it comes to marketing, business strategy, that's not their strength. That's not what they're good at. So, you know, as long as, and, and, and the, the fact that, you know, World Athletics, you know, uh, you know runs basically the, the, the top series currently, which is the Diamond League, um, uh, which is a series of individually owned and operated um, athletics meetings, but the Diamond League is, 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 is managed by, by World Athletics. And World Athletics has to be inclusive. And so if you look at any of the statistics that they put out to sort of, you know, tell, you know, what a great job they've been doing, it's all about how many countries are participating and how many actual athletes are participating and how many, it's more and more and more and more and more. Professional sport, by its very nature, is exclusive. So there's a there's a there's a pull there that doesn't work when world athletics and these federations have to be inclusive and then they try to operate and manage a professional sport which should be exclusive. It ends up being inclusive. So there are too many events, there are too many athletes, there's too much going on at once. And you can't be a thriving professional sport in that way. So I think that it, you know, the professional side of the sport has to be separate from the governing bodies and global championships, like world championships and Olympics. That model is great. It works. But the Diamond League is trying to be both things, trying to be virtually or basically amateur sport and professional sport at the same time. It includes professional athletes, so the best of the best, but it also includes developing athletes. It also includes that sometimes even youth athletes. Um, if you can run fast enough or if you can gain enough, you know, or if you're the top, if we're in, let's say we're in Norway and they don't have a good 100 meter runner, they're going to put their, their top 100 meter runner is going to get a lane and they'll go diamondly. And that may be someone that no one knows except for the people sitting in the crowds and, and, and the meet. And that's great for those people sitting in the stands. But if you're trying, what we know where the money comes from, it's television and sponsorship. You know, event revenue is, 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 is significantly less um, than and, and pales dramatically in comparison to television rights and, and sponsorship rights. Well, you're not going to get the television rights and sponsorship rights if you're not focused on building a product for a television audience. And in athletics with the Diamond League meets, we're building the event, um, first and foremost, based on just trying to survive. As you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, about uh, um, UK athletics, they're just trying to survive. So when they put on a Diamond League in the London Stadium and it loses a tremendous amount of money, they come out of that not trying to figure out how to build on the success of this year. They come out trying to figure out how do we survive and get to the next flag. You know, it's just that's, 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 and that is athletics. Yeah, Michael, we have a we have a number of kind of running discussions in these podcasts, and and there are there are um, themes that keep coming up over and over again. And, and where you talked about inclusivity and exclusivity, this is I'm going to let Roger run with this because he just wrote a beautiful article about this, and I, and I think it's a really important um, a really important topic. But if I can take one of the other ones uh, that we've talked about, and that is the formats of sport. Roger was asking there about you know making whether shorter events and head to heads and all these kinds of things. You know, athletics for me, is that one sport, these events haven't changed since Roman times, right? It's, it's, we haven't got funky in a couple of thousand years here, right? It's, it's guys running in a straight line and getting across the table and throwing things and jumping over things. So for me as a sports purist, I love the fact that that is the case. I love the fact that we can compare Usain Bolt to Carl Lewis, to Jesse Owens. Um, but as someone with your business brain on and your involvement in the sport and someone to whom I'm sure the sport looks a great deal to say, help us. 
Do you think the sports of athletics is sacred in that there is such a lineage back all that way that we can't really mess with that? Or do you think that they will try and tweak the formats? And if so, do you think that's a mistake? I think so. If you're talking, when you say they, if they will try to tweak the format, if it's if it's the the governing bodies or you know federations, they cannot. It is sacred for them. They cannot. They will come under tremendous criticism for tweaking the format. Um, but if you take it out from under that umbrella, where it's a commercially driven, privately funded, for profit organization that is now doing it and you're not subject to the votes of council members and member federations who are all traditionalists then it can be done and now all you answer to is shareholders or investors but first and foremost you answer to fans and fans is an interesting one when it comes to track and field or any sport you have your existing fan base but you have to obviously go out and get new fans and the new fans are not really beholden to the history of the sport or the format of the sport. They are open to just what entertains me, what I'm, what what do I enjoy, um, and that's a that's a that's a delicate and important balance you have to strike. Um, but but I don't think also that you have to change the traditional format of the sport so much. You know, you don't have to start, you know, throwing all sorts of obstacles and things and craziness into the 100 <laughs> meters. People just love to see people race, whether it's the one meter, the mile, or 5,000, or one and three meter hurdles. But the way the sport is presented is the issue where there hasn't been any innovation. If you look at most other sports, whether it be boxing or tennis or football, they haven't changed in decades as well. Um, but they have changed dramatically in terms of how those sports are, are um, how those sports are presented. Uh, rules are changed on, a, you know, and tweaked in order to make the sport more interesting um, and more competitive as well. Because at the end of the day, that's what fans want to see. Michael, the International Olympic Committee and World Athletics, or um, have always been hand in hand. I would imagine that the biggest viewing figures are around athletics for the Olympic Games. And I would imagine that both need each other. The IOC needs athletics to be the kind of the, the poster child of, of the whole games. And world athletics needs uh, the Olympic kind of um, rubber stamping. How much would you say that the IOC has been a hindrance to, to the evolution of athletics, i.e. it seems that many sports are beholden to the IOC, the power of the, the governance of the IOC, and that restricts the ability to innovate. Where, where are you on that? Because you walk these corridors, you, you talk to people all the time, but you're independent. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I, 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 I know what you mean. I would, I would phrase it a bit different. I don't see anywhere where the IOC places any restrictions at all on world athletics. There are no restrictions. They do both need each other. There's no doubt about that. But the IOC gets what it needs from world athletics um, just as it is. And any changes to world athletics isn't going to necessarily be much of a threat to the IOC because the Olympic world, the athletics is always going to be a, an Olympic sport, and it's always going to be one of the biggest Olympic sports, right? I think what happens is, I think I put it more on world athletics, and that world athletics doesn't innovate because they don't need to, because every four years you're going to get that Olympic dividend. It's not the IOC that restricts world athletics. It's just the fact that world athletics or athletics as a sport has always been the Olympic sport, the premier Olympic sport. I mean, you mentioned something earlier at the top of the show, you know, about, you know, you know, an existential threat to track and field or athletics. There is none, as long as that's the Olympic sport. And that is the problem. From a business standpoint, if you are threatened, you have an existential threat or you have a threat that your revenue or your market share or your share of audience is going to go down, you are making changes, your board yeah. requires it. Your job requires it. Your existence requires it. But if that is never in threat, then you're happy to just coast along as it. Michael, I think um, 
I think Gels, you know, was talking about a really important thing there. Turn around his question a different way. Does the drip feed of money that comes from the IOC make a lot of Olympic sports really only live for one moment every four years instead of what you're talking about, which is um, an entertainment and a sporting product that is every day, all day, where you know the athletes better, where you know their personalities, their backstories, you get interested into their competition and rivalry. You know, that's where this podcast always feels the issue is with the IOC, not necessarily a criticism, but they create a model that is enough to keep sports on a drip feed alive, but not enough for them to progress and innovate as you're suggesting. Yes. Um, and maybe there could be more, there could be more money from the IOC to the sports and that money could be used to, to create um, better competition that is more entertaining in those four years in between. But I've never thought of it that way, but, but what I know exists at the moment is, so you have the IOC, you have member federations, so National Olympic Committee, so the British Olympics Association, U.S. Olympic uh, Committee, and then you have sports like World Athletics, and they have member federations. So that money that comes down from the IOC gets spread down to these federations. Um, they get spread down to the, the sports themselves and then to those member federations. And what those member federations do with that money, you know, when they're doing the right thing with it, is it's developing the next generation of athletes. A lot of it is around development. So there is no real focus and there's no real remit for any of those organizations to create a professional existence outside of the Olympics or in between the four years of the Olympics. It's all around just developing athletes and, and then, you know, creating a few competitions that, you know, are, are going to allow those athletes to compete, you know, within those three years. But it's not around creating an actual professional sport. Um, that, and you have to be commercially driven for that. And, um, and, and, and that's, that's difficult. Let's be honest. I mean, that is difficult. It's, it's not easy. And I think that what ends up happening is, well, if you know that you're back to our original point, if you know you're always going to exist, then you're going to avoid the difficult things if you don't have to do them. Yeah. Michael, let me just follow on and then I'll leave my colleagues on this because this podcast for five years has been all about what you've been talking about here, challenger leaks, uh, changes in governance that is no longer, let's say, modern and fit for purpose. But so I'm with you. We're with you. Of the three of us, I'm certainly with you. I, I would be the more disruptor one of the three of us. But let me throw this at you. When you start doing these challenger type things, and let's take the example of cricket, but you could do it in lacrosse, you could do it in GP, you could do it on the PTO and triathlon. At some point you get calendar issues because the money dictates that they want the availability of the athletes. And before you know it, the golden history and tradition of the sport that Grant was talking about is struggling for time. Uh, you know, we've seen this very much in cricket and, and it's obviously clear that the IPL, the Indian uh, short version of the game is going to overtake all the kind of like international um, test matches and everything like that. I would guess if I was sitting the, on the IOC or World Athletics and I didn't want to listen to you, Michael, I would say that. I would say it's the thin end of the wedge. We start all these new things that you're talking about. And before you know it, the athletes won't have time to go to the uh, World Championships and the Olympics. That would be the counter argument. And I would counter with we've got one Olympics every four years and we've got a World Championship every two years. And so, so there is plenty of time you know, for, for, for world-class uh, competition in between. We have the Diamond League, which is 14 events per year. Um, and you're not required to go to all of those. So, so, so athletics, more so than any other sport, certainly it's not a team sport, so you don't have a schedule you know, each year of calendar with you've got to play all of the different teams in your league. It's not even like tennis where you have to compete in so many different matches below the Grand Slams to get points and get out if you don't compete in a certain number. I'm um, not sure how golf works. 
But I would say, well, you know, athletics is a lot more like boxing. You know, you choose when you want to race. You know, you choose when you want to race. And um, so most of the athletes aren't racing very much at all. The events that they do choose to race in are the money is so minimal that they use those races to get ready for their one opportunity to actually earn and be on the large showcase, which is a global championship each year, which is every four years is the Olympics, every two years it's the world championships. That's what they're focused on. The way that the only real money that the best of the best have is from their their shoe and apparel contracts, whether that be with Adidas, Nike, On, or, or, or Puma, or whoever. And those contracts are structured in a way that incentivizes them to make their national team for those global championships and then to, to, to perform as best as they can there, win a medal or win the whole thing. So, and if you don't do that and you're expected to, then your contract money is reduced as a result of that. So you're incentivized totally around those championships and that's it. So there's a real opportunity outside of those championships because currently the athletes aren't racing quite that much and they're only racing to prepare for those, those major events. And they're avoiding one another because there's no real incentive. If there's no real money there, the, the prize money for first place at the Diamond League is $10,000, which just is not, relatively speaking, it's just not very much money. So why would I go and compete against my main rivals at a Diamond League if I don't have to, when my real focus is on just competing against them, being at my best to compete against them at the end of the year in whatever the global championship is. Michael, another question. We're talking about the future of athletics and, and you've been vocal about it. If you were if you were to be given the magic wand and you could make the changes you wanted, if you just take the sport of athletics, which is clearly many disciplines, as you look at it, what, what, and, and maybe this is too controversial, what stays in, what stays out? What, what, what gets, just doesn't make the cut anymore in terms of as a, maybe a very old traditional sport, but actually just does not move the needle. Do you, do you have strong views on that? Yeah, I do. And it's a, it, it is a very controversial question and one that is often talked about within the sport because the, the, the prevailing sort of sentiment within the sport and the traditionalist is that that's what makes track and field great is that it's all of these different things. And, 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 and track and field or athletics has built itself very much uh, on the idea of who deserves what? And you're a track and field athlete. You're part of the special, very special club. And anybody who's part of the very special club deserves equal treatment. And that's what, you, that's what everybody deserves. So it's all based on deserve. Well, so as soon as you start to exclude anyone or you mention excluding anyone, it's like, but they deserve it too. Okay. All right. And, and, and that becomes problematic. And that's why the sport is paralyzed in terms of what, you know, needs to happen. I'm not avoiding your question at all, Giles, by saying what I'm about to say. I've said this before. I don't think that it is me who should be making the decision as to what stays in and what goes. I absolutely know that something has to go. You can't continue to have people throwing and people jumping and people vaulting and people sprinting all at the same time in the stadium. You can't continue to do that. It does not work. I've been in television now for 22 years, and I've seen how we struggle to make that work for an audience. Nobody ends up happy. We're trying to just satisfy everyone, and everybody ends up upset. You, you went away from the 10,000 meters, that's the distance running back, to go and show us a, you know attempt on a long jump, which was a foul. <laughs> and uh, it didn't even count. And then the long jump fans, the field event fans are saying, you know, you're not showing us enough field events, right? So nobody ends up happy. Yet, if you're going to do this based on television revenue and you need to build a fan base that is going to watch, in order to build a fan base, you have to know what they want to see. So they're the ones that would decide for me. It's a matter of doing the research and understanding and looking at fan analytics and understanding, well, what do they find compelling competition today? This generation, not people that are my age, not people that are, you know, diehard track fans, but you figure out what's that demographic that you're going after, which is probably going to be led by what the streaming services and the broadcasters want 
you know, which eyeballs they want on their uh, on their screens. And that's going to guide you in terms of what demographic you're going after. And that's going to guide you in terms of what they buy um, compelling. And that's going to guide what stays and what goes. Once you give me that information, I will make that decision and I will bear the brunt of those traditional fans who say, I can't believe you took that out. They deserve to be there too. And, and does World Athletics, do you, as far as you know, do they? what do they know about their fan base? What do they know about the audience? What do they know about the next gen? Have they researched it? Has there been anything as far as you know? I'm not quite, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what they've done in that, in that space. Um, what I would tell you is that if they have done any work in that space, I don't know. And, and if they, they found out, you know, sort of what, you know, you know, the, the fans really enjoy or don't or what a new fan base would really enjoy or don't, I don't know that they will be prepared to actually do anything about that because there's, there's going to be backlash and there are, you know, you've got 200 plus member federations and council members all with a vote. And, um, and some of them are long jumpers and some of them are 10,000 meter runners and some of them are, you know, are their country, you know, thrives in that area. And so they're going to be advocating for, you know, the survival of the events that, that, that they are most interested in or have value in. And, um, and you're going to have some trouble if you take it away from them. Roger mentioned the IPL, the, the Indian um, cricket. And one of the things they've been so innovatory about is that they really are researching all the time, every season, what is the fan after. So they will make tweaks, they will make changes, which is based on data and evidence, rather than, the, I think, the, 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 the extraordinary times we live in now where data, information, feedback loops are readily available for those who understand how to use them and not be fearful of technology and data. It's there to help because it's there to provide, rather than assumption being the mother of all uh, mess-ups, I think is the expression, is actually ask people, ask, find out, and then make informed decisions, not just knee-jerk decisions, look to the long term. And I well, suspect... I mean, I... We've been doing, I mean, I, I, I was part of a group. Uh, we bought the Dallas Mavericks back in the mid-90s. And, uh, and then we ended up selling it uh, uh, later. But we were doing that. I, I remember sitting in the meetings. because I was still competing at the time. And um, with the NBA owners groups. And we were doing this back in the 90s. There's a competition committee made up of uh, you know, 10 of the teams would have a, a, a member on the competition committee for the NBA. And... Um, and, and, and there would be referees, there are, you know, NBA executives and the people on the competition committee having, a you know, meetings at the end of every season, you know, looking at fan data, looking at analytics to determine, you know, is our game getting faster, slower, more exciting, more competitive, less competitive, and what do we do about that? So this isn't new. This has been going on for a very long time. And it's just, it's, for, for most sports, this is a fundamental so something that you must do, you know, and you have to do every year is to make sure that you are you know, focused on fans and focused on maintaining your market share, you know, when it comes to the very competitive nature of sports commercial rights. Michael, can I, can I switch the conversation a little bit, if I may? Um, I want to talk about mindset. You know, you spoke about this at the beginning and, and coaching mindset. And, and it's been fascinating to me as a sports fan my whole life to watch and really understand the difference that mindset makes. You know, you, you were at your peak when the other MJ was at his peak in the NBA. Um, and so we saw these two just peak athletes who dominated. And it always seems to me that it was up here that you dominate. It's, it's a mindset thing. You know, Jordan was the ultimate competitor. You kind of refused to be beaten for seven years and just wouldn't allow it to happen. And you see in particularly in team sports, I think, guys like Johnny Manziel in the in the football world, and we've had some soccer players in the UK, a guy called Ravel Morrison, who everybody swears was the greatest footballer they've ever seen, who just flame out because they just don't have what it takes between the ears. So can you just talk a little bit about, about how, how you toughened your mind up when you were competing um, and the kind of things you, you counsel athletes to do to try and get yourself in that zone and elevate yourself that extra level that you, you can't do physically. It has to be mentally. Yeah. I think you first have to realize that, you know, sport is a sort of microcosm of society. I mean, you have 
people who are extraordinarily strategic, you know, and their brain, it just works that way um, in society. And you have that at sport. You have people who are just the absolute worst decision makers ever in life. And you have that in sport. And so that, so it's, so it's not different for sport. If you've got someone who is just, you know, they're just wired in a way to be self-destructive. They may be the most talented and skilled athlete in a particular sport that has ever walked the earth, but they are still going to, that's not going to, nothing about that is going to now just miraculously make them a great decision maker. Just it's the way it is. So, so you had those people. And when you have the people who, the athletes in sport, who are at the, just the absolute best, not the best of their era, but the best there's ever been, in their sport and they do just amazing things in their sport that just sort of moves the needle in that sport. Those are the people who typically are extraordinarily physically gifted and they are also gifted around the skill of their sport. So they, they understand that sport better than most of their competitors. And then sometimes better than any coach, you know, they just understand that sport at a level that is unparalleled. There's not a lot of things that I could just, you know, just dominate anyone on earth, you know, in a debate about. But 400 meters, I, I, I challenge anybody to debate me about how to run 400 meters. Um, <laughs> no you know, and, and I'm just, I will destroy you. <laughs> There's that mindset, um, but uh, but um, and, and and then the other part of it then is is also yes, being a great strategist and decision maker, not only about how you compete in your sport um, in the moment. Um, so for me, not only about you know how I would run the 400 meters, but about how I prepare for the 400 meters, how I prepare for competition how I train, how I set up my training, how I set up my life as an athlete to be able to accomplish the goals that I want to, that I want to accomplish. Um, and that comes from understanding yourself as a person. I know what my weaknesses are. I know what my strengths are. And I knew that and, and learned that early on in my athletic career. So I was able to then develop a platform for success around achieving the goals that I want based on what I know about myself. And, and most importantly, knowing what I'm not very good at, knowing what my weaknesses are. So, so how do you take when you when you move from the um, when you move from the world of athletics into the real world, into being an entrepreneur, into being a businessman, into TV? How do you adjust that mindset when there isn't there's no there's no clock running anymore? Suddenly, you've you've got to use that same mental focus, but you've got to channel it in a different way. How, how do you make that adjustment? And are there any things that you did consciously to adapt to this new world? Yeah, I was sort of learning along as, as I went into that transition. But, but uh, I think the first thing to notice is that, you know, what, what motivated me um, when I was competing was running faster, but it wasn't just the time that motivated me and to run faster. It was, well, my goal is to run faster. So I was motivated by the goal and understanding that and knowing that, that I'm motivated by my goals. My goal is to be faster than the other people, to not be beaten, to win as many gold medals as I can, to run as fast as I possibly can. Those were the goals. And so what was motivating me every day, and that allowed me to be able to set up the training environment and mindset around everything was, well, this is my goal. So that part was easy when I transitioned as a television pundit. My goal was to be an award-winning television pundit. And now I've done that. But that was the goal. So I've got to develop the skill set in order to be able to achieve that goal. Same thing as an entrepreneur. Um, and um, so it's the goal. The difficulty was around the adjustment in the strategy of how I achieve the goal. Because, yeah, when, the, when it's about running faster, you know, that's and it's me. And I've got a team of people that are working with me, but, you know, Everybody, you know, sort of knows their role. It's a very small team, and I'm the I'm the one that's got to go out there and execute by myself in a very in, a, in, in an individual sport. Now, as a, as a entrepreneur 
you know, with a, a staff of 40 plus people, you know, I've got to manage all of these people. You know, we've got to work together as a team. We've got a lot of different things that we have to do, and I'm not great at all of them. I'm only good at maybe one of them, and I've got to rely on other people to be able to do the other things, and we've got to work as a team. All of those things were a huge challenge for me, transitioning from that to to this. And also, you know, waking up every morning, you know, as an athlete, knowing that, you know, I'm extraordinarily talented and gifted to do this is a huge benefit that you absolutely realize when you become an entrepreneur and all of a sudden you wake up every morning going, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Can I just steal one, one more quick one and just follow up on that? I, I'm, I'm, I'm just so interested in this because I always figured that Michael Jordan, for example, would be a terrible coach because he's just too damn good. So how, how do you adjust your your comfort with being the best at what you do and having a team of people who you have to try and at the same time motivate, but you've got to kind of bring them up a level, but not look down on them because they can't quite get there. How, how do you balance that? Because it must be incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, coaching is, I mean, I've, I've, I've never been a coach myself, but I've hired lots of coaches and I understand the skill that they have. And, and, and I, I respect the skill that they have, which is why I've never done it. And you're right. Jordan would be a horrible coach. I probably wouldn't be a great <laughs> coach. Um, right. you know, and, and I recognize that, um, uh, more so because I just don't have the skill that they have. I mean, coaching is teaching and, and, and it's all, and it's long term. It's over, over time. I can do it for a day. You know, you give me a day, I can make you better. But over that time of just, you know, continuing that, that's not my thing. Um, but, but as a, as a manager of people, um, and, and, and now as a, as an advisor as well, and advising people on performance and their mindset around performance, and it, it's a matter of understanding that my situation is unique and, my circumstances were unique and I was able to get the best from myself by understanding, you know, exactly who I am and how I function and how to then create a structure for myself to be able to succeed. So what I, so how do you do that for other people? You help them figure that out for themselves and how to get the best from their themselves. I would have employees early on. Yeah. that would come in, you know, and want me to, well, tell me what to do. Tell me how you do it. I want to do it because you did it. Right. If I just do all of the things that you did and I knew early on, like, yeah, that's not going to work for you. You're not me <laughs> right. and I'm not you. You know, right. We're two completely different people. And um, so I figured out fairly early on that my best advice to, to my, my employees was, hey, here's what I did. Here's how I did it. And 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 allow them to then pick off from that that okay, he figured out how to get the best from himself based on what he knows about himself and what he's continuing to learn about himself, and that's what I have to do as well. And now there and there are some things that I can you know I can help that I would be able to help them understand. You know, here are some of the ways that you that you that you do that and and how you go about you know figuring out you know these things about yourself and and how to develop your own you know, personal formula for success. Michael, this is, this is last question that I, I think I want it to be a, a positive one. I don't want this to be a kind of like, okay, boomer, you know, the youngsters are not as strong and mentally strong as, as our generation. Uh, but, you know, I read Slaying the Dragon and, you know, what's coming out of there is that, you know, everybody faces difficulties in life. Everybody's got strengths and weaknesses. You uh, you address the weaknesses. You 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 build on your strengths. You you grind through. You and 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 I'm talking as a normal person. You're a, a world class elite athlete. Can I ask you a little bit how you look on today's stars in sport and when it sometimes seems to uh, us outsiders that they seem to drop off relatively easily when a little bit of trouble comes their way. Am I wrong to say that? Is that unfair or is there a a much earlier kind of like um, giving in to difficulty in the modern generation of athlete? It's a good question. I think, you know, I think it would probably, again, 
mirror wider society um, with young people, you know, um, and I think that um, you're going to have some who, um, you know, were raised by, you know, my generation, you know, and, 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 and they were raised in a different way than, than we were raised by our parents. And, um, but I think that, you know, some of the, some of the things that we, we talk about a lot about that, I don't know about there in the UK, but in the US, we had a period of time when, you know, the, the kids that are, that are, that are adults now that we were raising, you know, with sport, it was sort of a, this very, this very short lived period of, Hey, everybody gets a participation trophy and everybody gets to play. Everyone should get to play. And that wasn't the way it was for us. That generation with that, that thing was pretty short lived, um, thankfully. Um, and, but, but it caught some people, I think, I think it caught some kids who, you know, sort of, you know, grew up with that and, 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 and they sort of expect that, yeah, I, I deserve it and I should, you know, I don't have to necessarily work for it and I don't have to compete for it. I'm the best. And so uh, that should be reflected in the score. That should be reflected in my contract. That should be reflected in, you know, my reward. Um, I think that this generation, they grew up with technology. Technology has been amazing for us that it pretty much gets you everything that you need as, as quickly as you need it. And so they expect things a lot quicker. Um, so there will, there, you know, if you're not, you know, I say this to athletes on all the time and I always have, you know, you have to make a, a really difficult decision if you believe in your talent, you know, and if it's not, you know, sort of coming through and you're not getting signed and you're not signed the contract or you're not winning, you got to make a decision whether you jump off or not and go ahead and move on, you know, or, or whether you keep after it. This generation might be willing to jump off a lot quicker because they're not seeing the success and they, are used to seeing the success much quicker uh, and getting the result quicker. So, so I, you know, I, that probably doesn't give you a good answer, but, you know, I think that, you know, there's probably a mix of both. Um, but, you know, there is often a thing of, you know, from a lot of our generation, or, you know, are they softer? And I, that I don't see. I, I don't see that. I mean, you know, I did not have to deal with everyone in the world voicing their opinion about every single thing I do. And, and this generation does. They have to like, you open up social media and everybody's got an opinion on what you did and they're going to let you know it. And that's difficult. That is really hard. And, and, and I do not have to deal with that. And, and, and they do. So that's tough. And, and they, they, they sold you through it. Michael, there have been people in the past who've said that the three of us are, are, are grumpy old goats who are just looking on the sports industry. Well, you are also um, in that you can be you can join us in our club. The only difference is you really are a goat as one of the greatest <laughs> of all time. Well, so we're just we're just grumpy old goats. It's been an hour and what a massive, massive um, pleasure for us to to have you on the show and, and a real privilege to hear your thoughts, both about where your beloved sport is and where it needs to go, but also just to share time with us. So on behalf of everybody at Are You Not Insane, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Michael, absolutely. thank you. Enjoyed it was it. amazing. Thank you, sir. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, fellas, what about that? That was, um, what I mean, what a privilege. What Not, not only to get a chance privilege. to to meet virtually and talk to someone like Michael Johnson, but for him to be so open and just such a super chill guy and having to talk about anything, it's, it's, they say don't meet your heroes and there are exceptions and he's definitely one of those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> difficult to do a podcast like that, Grant, you know, um, there is an element of, um, it's not intimidation. What's the word I'm looking for? There is an element of adulation. Um, Rog is the word you're looking for. Well, possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's say if he had disagreed with me, I wasn't going to go back and challenge him on it. <laughs> Do you know what? I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like, you know what? <laughs> Get to you, e junkie. You'd have been at his, you'd have been at his throat. There's no doubt you would have been. Like, the, like so. the Scottish paddleboarder with the killer whale. <laughs> I don't think so. No, it was great. It was just really a privilege, you know, and and we shouldn't take that for granted. And thank you, Giles, for setting that up. Kudos yeah, to you. And um, just wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, but what for me, and you say that you're absolutely right, Grant, about your heroes, and, and, and he absolutely was one. But what I, 
fascinates me more is he's kept so in touch with his sport through the, the pundit work. I was fascinated that he'd set a goal to be the best pundit he could be. He absolutely, for those of us who who do watch BBC Sport, he is a brilliant, he brilliant is, yeah. commentator and gives a perception of the sport that normal mortals just couldn't understand. And I just love the fact that he is driven in, in everything he does, but has also reached an age where by his own standards, I suspect, to slow down. It just feels very comfortable. And um, I think for, for, for all of us, it was just a very easy conversation about someone who knows an awful lot about his sport and is brave enough to say it needs changing. I think it's somebody that's lived a life very, very well. Uh, he's, you know, he talks about the holidays and the balance and uh, a, a life less ordinary. That's That's what was flashing through my head for an hour. Yeah, absolutely right. Although I'd still like to see uh, if anybody's going to debate him on how to run the 400 metres, Rog, I think it'd be you, you <laughs> chippy scotch git. <laughs> I could have taken him. I could have taken yeah, him. Yeah, I reckon so. Yeah, I reckon yeah. so. Yeah. Do a bit of reading. Do yeah, a bit of reading. D- David yeah. Jenkins blast out for the first 200 <laughs> and then you don't hope you don't tie up. That would have been my line. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I okay. All right, fellas. Well, listen, always good fun. Always good fun. Uh, and our thanks, uh, of course, to our, uh, uh, to our guest, Michael Johnson, for giving us that time. And our thanks to you for listening. Uh, if you don't follow us already, that's easily re- rectified. You can follow us on Twitter at EntertainR. That's the word A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. That's with um, G-S-A-N. Morgsan. For Giles Morgsan, 71. <laughs> And you can find me at RPM Como as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent.